When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 145. We're recording on Thursday, February 18th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Well, here we are. We're back. We are. On this holy day, uh, Toni Morrison's 85th birthday today. Happy birthday. Happy uh, birthday. Thank you Queen for being Morrison. born, Toni Morrison. Thank you for being born, turn, turning a uh, robust 85. The rumors are out there. There's another book. Yeah. Uh, that's that, you know, who knows when we'll get it. But she's out there holding forth. She just made some appearances. God Help the Child came out in paperback, I think, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did an appearance at uh, uh, an event space in Brooklyn in a synagogue, actually, in conjunction with I think it was Word or Greenlight or somebody. Um, so she's out there. She's making appearances. She's still rolling around in a wheelchair, but she's out there in the world. So it makes us all thrilled. You know, it's one of those things. I, I've said this before, um, I think, on the show, but I can't remember, you know, like, in 40 years, when, you know, I'm uh, 45. Mm, um, yeah, that's how that's going to go. You're going to be you're gonna bouncing, you know, bouncing your grandkid on your niece saying, or grandniece or, you know, random kid off the street saying, <laughs> I, was, I was alive when Toni Morrison was alive. Like, that's going to be a thing. I know. We're going to have stories about that time we sat yeah. in the front row at the Toni Morrison I know, signing. Toni Morrison. And, like, they're going to ask, did, did she actually glow or is that just rumor or what, what's going it's, on? So Man, so amazing. I never love literary Twitter more than when an author who has really made a difference in people's lives uh, has a birthday or some significant yes. event. And certainly we would prefer the birthday over the other kinds of significant no. events that make us talk no, about no. what Someone authors mean. Someone on the mean, book we, Slack said they were, nope. Morrison was trending on Twitter. Twitter and they, their Your heart, heart starts beating really fast. Yes. Uh, but literary Twitter on today, February 18th, has been quite lovely. And it's only like noon my time. No, I, I have the rest of the day to enjoy people sharing their favorite quotes <laughs> and talking about how inspiring she is. And man, I'm here for that. It's been in, in the, a good the, day. the list of living writers who you feel like are going to be in the pantheon someday, uh, Morrison, certainly in America, you know, is at the top of the list. After that, I feel yeah, like it's hard to say. I was going to say the same thing. I would put money on Toni Morrison. I don't yeah. know who is number two on the list of living writers that well, in the fullness Rowling, of time. Oh, I see how. Okay, sure. Um, subtweeting me to my face. Nice. I like that. <laughs> I drink some coffee to get over it's that. It's a new thing. Take a sip and I'll talk about our first sponsor. Yeah, I mean, it's rolling. It's rolling. And then from there, it's hard to say. And Morrison and rolling are different categories of, of writer. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and as I was thinking like living American writers, I don't, I don't know. There's Toni yeah. Morrison and then there's like, I like to hope that Marilyn Robinson yeah. will be remembered. Three novel, uh, four novels. But uh, yeah. And the books are just so much a product of. It's kind of like one big project. I guess save housekeeping, yeah. like the Gilead trilogy. Right. Um, hope, hopefully a quadrilogy, hopefully a uh, decade. They're a product of a person living in this time, looking back at a certain time, and 
It's very, those are very, I mean, I love I them, mean, but. the classic ones would be Roth. I feel like he had his, uh, I'm not sure that's going to age very the well. The shine's wearing the off those already. Yeah, the corpus of Roth um, seems more embedded. in for, for as much historical stuff as Morrison did, uh, feels more timeless somehow than Roth, which feels very like 60s and 70s to me. Mm. Um, there's not, nothing wrong with that, but just when you're looking for someone whose work could sort of been uh, put in marble relief as, as history goes forward, um, that, that's what, I mean, Rushdie maybe, I, not American, but I'm just sort of expanding the, the focus a little bit. It's hard to say, but anyway, the, more than anything, um, throws into relief Morrison's singular accomplishment and career, um, and many more. Here's to many more. Many, many more. Uh, let's do a quick sponsor. Uh, speaking of, well, rolling, uh, she's not YA. I guess middle grade into YA is what the Harry Potter series became. Well, now she does mystery and adult and everything else. Let's just reach for that segue. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for it somewhere. You can't get there for Morrison. That's for darn sure. No, no. Um, but we just want to take a minute for take our own sponsor spot for We have got a new email newsletter. It's coming out every other week. It's called What's Up in YA, um, written by our own Kelly Jensen, who probably keeps track of YA as much as anyone on the planet, I would say. She's like uh, a walking YA encyclopedia. She does these these Whitman-esque catalogs. Not they're not they're they're catalogs, not Whitman-esque. They're not written in free verse, but like these huge lists of YA books to watch for every sort of season, spring, summer, fall. Um, that have hundreds of books, and she's looking constantly what's coming out there. She's very well connected. Um, she writes these. They're written emails. They're they're voiced. Where she takes, you know, she tells you what the interesting news going on in the world of YA, what interesting books are coming out. Links, not just to book write stuff, stuff from all over the internet. Um, really good way if you're into YA as a teacher, librarian, fan, editor, agent, uh, whatever it is you want to to keep track of. It comes out every other week to email. Um, you can get it all right there. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but it's uh, the first one dropped on Monday. And uh, comes out every other week, and that's a really cool way to keep up with uh, YA. You know, like it's one of those things. There's enough. There's enough news now, and man, it, it's not just me. I know because I've talked to a couple other people about this. There's more book-related stuff on the internet than there was when we started this. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. And harder and harder to keep up with. So one thing we're doing um, as we go forward is we're doing some specialized newsletters. We have one for I just mentioned them all. We have the deals newsletter. We have the new books newsletter. That's weekly releases that Liberty writes. Um, that sort of spans all genres. The Riot Rundown, which is the best of book riot, comes out a few times. We've got, we've got a few more coming out soon. Um, but this is our first genre-specific newsletter. I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, yeah, what's up in YA? Drop a link. There will be a link in the show notes. Podcast. Book, excuse me, bookriot.com slash podcast. Yeah, it's rad. Kelly did such a wonderful job with it, just sort of telling the story of what's been going on in YA for the last few weeks. And she's just an incredible resource too for like, I need a YA book. I know. This kind of protagonist and it needs to have ballet and unicorns and be set in the 1970s. And she's like, uh, okay, here are seven options. Something about Alaska. Actually, she wrote a three on a theme YA book set in Alaska. Yeah. Like that. That's how granular her knowledge uh, uh, is. Um, So also, you know, if you've got a teenager or someone who likes Mm -hmm. YA, not just for yourself, but someone in your life that might like to keep up with it. Uh, All right. So So we got the preliminaries out of the way. Back to grandma's attic. See, now this one makes me mad. (laughs) Um, So we're back to... I could tell when you saw the story on Twitter that you were a little cranky about it, but I want to know why. Tell me me your feelings. So we found a couple of Tolkien's poems uh, that he wrote in a school publication 
Um, one's called Noel, uh, discovered in 1936 school annual. Um, and the other one was, let's see, The Shadow Man, uh, Adventures of, is, is published later in Adventures of Tom Bombadil, 19, anyway, these are, these were found, in, uh, here's the thing, <laughs> if you're going to be the Tolkien estate, or, you know, any of these estates that guards vigorously, vigilantly, and some, some would say adversariously the estate, as the Tolkien's notoriously have, you should know where all the stuff is. You should definitely it, know where all the stuff is. I mean, is. This, is, this, is not all, this is not like that Sherlock Holmes thing was his unsigned one-off monograph in, you know, that whatever, that festival. Remember mm-hmm. that story? Yeah, yeah. This was in his school journal where he went to school. Like, wouldn't you go look in this place? Yeah, I, anyway. This is like, it's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your stuff is? Like, uh, <laughs> so anyway, there, you know, I'm not sure unless... I'm not sure unless you're like a super crazy uh, Tolkien sort of completist that you're going to want to go search these out. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there they are. There they are. It's, and I, I don't know. Maybe – I guess maybe they just don't do a full inventory of this stuff. They don't know. I mean maybe – and also he wrote so long and he had so many different interests and associated with so many bodies and organizations that I guess maybe it's understandable. But it's just like – Keep your keep your keep your I mean, stuff in working order. Like, the, like keep your stuff in line. Yeah, here. I'm with you here. The the random ones that pop up like in journals that have been non-existent for 80 years or well, something. Well, Charlette Bronte's like ad that, like de- I mean, they yeah, died of like those, mercury poisoning. Those that I kinds of things, like when you've got an author who didn't keep like digital records of all the places that they were published or that they you know sent things where yeah. whatever. I understand, but this you're right. He went to school in this place and he was right. And did they not look or did they look at these and not care or like how, 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 um, but they're going to make these poems the centerpiece of an exhibition on the rich history of the school. So the school's going to, you know, get something. I'm sure the right. school has been getting something from their association with Tolkien for decades, the way that small towns in Alabama get something from their association with um, mm-hmm. Harper Lee. But it's why? Yeah, this anyway, is, I don't weird. know. Like, I, you know, we might have to do a moratorium on these stories. Unless it's like super, like, unless it's like Ghost of the Watchmen. Like, I, you know, I, I just, I don't want to see something that Mark Twain scribbled on a menu in 1881. I, you know, I, I'm not here for this anymore, I think. So unless, unless, unless you find one that's super good, like a full, I'm, I'm looking for a full novel. I'm looking for a full short story. I'm not looking for something that Tolkien wrote for the school you know, a billion years ago that you know, has nothing to do with anything. It's interesting. I'm not here for this anymore. Now that we're sort of talking about it, it's interesting to me that these things continue to get coverage. Like this is a piece from the New York, one of the New York Times arts blogs. Mm-hmm. Like who is really interested in two random poems that Tolkien wrote in high school or college? Who is really interested in what Mark Twain wrote on the back of a napkin? Like a very no. small sliver of the super fandom for those people, maybe? Yeah. But why does this even... I mean, it's interesting that this is a thing that's happening right now that we're discovering all of these grandma's attic mm-hmm. bits of detritus from uh, people's publishing pasts. But I, I'm interested. Like maybe it's it feels like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point of like, we'll yeah, just make maybe. this a story. We'll make it a story. And so it will be a story. Well, I think the other thing is like in the day when you didn't have the Internet, um, you maybe wouldn't have given column inches to this in the art section of The New York Times. 
But you got you know it's a it's a short piece in the blogs part of the times they've got room to cover I mean and like unseen Tolkien work is going to get some clicks yeah because you know no no like maybe it's the fourth book in the Lord of the you know right. who knows after Ghost of the Wild I mean maybe that's the other thing it's like we had this sort of inflection point of interest where maybe there are full novels by people <laughs> I mean actually there probably are I mean that's I mean we're like, still do waiting we get on to read Salinger, an early draft of the Hobbit. <laughs> God, please no. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so Twice here, as much here lies our commitment to covering every single scrap of juvenilia and draft um, by by authors you've heard about. The next time we talk about one of these things, it's going to be something where I might consider go out and buying a book or something like that. Like, you know, no, no more, no, no more. No more. You're done. No more cereal box. You really turned the corner on that pretty quickly. Yeah, I did. I actually am convincing myself more of it even as I'm talking. I'm getting more and more frustrated. Um, uh, you know, it's I, I don't know why, too, that we're getting a bunch of adaptation news. I guess maybe first of the year, getting ready for the fall when a bunch of stuff comes out. Um, this one's interesting because uh, it's Franzen's novel Purity is going to be adapted for TV. Um, and it's going to star Daniel Craig. Um not clear yet where it's going to go, but Showtime, Netflix, and FX are are, are all in the mix. Uh, a 20-episode order. Mm. So I, I don't know if it's going to be a one-season sort of in-and-out deal um, or if it's going to be basically the the, the seed for a TV series going forward. Um, but there, there it is. And Craig is a big name, so... That's pretty interesting. He's, yeah, he's you. the most interesting part of this yeah. to me. But I don't think even Daniel Craig could get me to care about a Jonathan Franzen adaptation. No, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Franzen apparently would be co-writing the the teleplay with Todd Field, who did the Little Children's Scream uh, stage play uh, teleplay. Excuse me. Um, this would be the first time a Franzen work has been adapted into anything, which it was kind of weird when you think about it. Uh, the corrections that, would be a great like bitter holiday movie. Yeah, and the corrections actually we were bouncing this around on the book rights like again the other day that a few years ago there was a pilot shot for an HBO miniseries of the corrections um, starring Ellen McGregor and uh, I can't remember who the the, the dad was going to be now off the top of my head. Then um, they shot a pilot. Noah Baumbach directed it, uh, but the HBO passed on it. Um, so that's as close as we've come. I, I thought freedom, freedom felt to me like maybe the apex of the Franzen mm-hmm. caringness of the world because it was the corrections. It was it was hype, but he had sort of that was his first thing. And your second thing after you've had a big one is where the anticipation really builds, right? Um, and it was decent. I thought the book was pretty good. Uh, and I also thought that it could have made an interesting movie or, or TV yeah, show. Yeah, you could see that with the ensemble cast working well for TV. Like I yeah. didn't, I didn't love Freedom, but I could see it as source material being mm-hmm. you know, reasonably interesting for television. And you're right, like Freedom is still getting, it still has sort of the not so the social media like pop culture juice. There mm-hmm. was uh, it was like a part of a plot line on Younger. This week yes, where right. the yeah, guy's yeah. wife left him right after she read Freedom and it inspired her to go looking for the things and people that would actually make her happy. <laughs> there was a there's a Parks and Rec shout out the Freedom oh, right. uh, you know, when uh, Amy Poehler tells Rashida Jones that uh, you got to read this because I got to talk about Patty. Um, whereas Purity went over like a lead balloon. Like no one's talking about Purity. But you, 
yeah, the the coverage of purity was there was like fawning critical coverage, and then there was a whole lot of unfawning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is not how you cover like a feminist character. This is not mm-hmm. how you, this is not what resonates with the people that Franzen claims to understand. Um, yeah, yeah, I no longer think that Jonathan Franzen could produce something that is of interest and relevance to me. And um, now on, on the on the bookish internet, fairly or not, um, he's more. Relevant as sort of a, a antihero, right? As, as a don't, as yeah. As a don't, as a punching bag, as a kind of a, a hot air balloon to prick. Um, but anyway, so th- that that will be interesting. I mean, Craig is interesting. I, mm-hmm. I like him. He's yeah. an interesting guy himself. Um, if you've seen any of his discourse on James Bond as a character, I found it very fascinating. Mm-hmm. His own perspective on it. Um, a good actor. Uh, he had a lot of interesting things to say around the time when uh, the the girl with a dragon tattoo came out, the American adaptation. I had some thoughtful things to say about that. Just an interesting guy all around, to, all the way around to me. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of, I'm I'm here usually for what Daniel Craig is doing. And if it's on TV and I have to, don't have to go to the theater and see it, I'll, I'll give this a watch to see how it's handled. But I'm not thrilled uh, to, to see it. But that is the big adaptation news this week. Um, I've heard good things about this War and Peace adaptation that has been on the BBC. Um, I guess, it, is it over? I'm not exactly sure. I um, think so. Or was it released all at once? I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, you know, I, I lose track of the BBC stuff where it goes there first, then it's here, and it's dropped in weird, you know, Downton Abbey or Sherlock. They have, they're of their own cadence to TV over there. I'm never quite sure what's going on. Um, but the upshot of why we're talking about it right now is, A, that it exists, and B, that it is selling copies. It's moving units, as we like to say. Um, according to the bookseller, total sales for the BBC edition have sold more than 13,000 over in the UK since its December release. Um, and also the other editions are all seeing a boost all around. Uh, let's see. Wordsworth has sold, that's one of the um, booksellers over in the UK, um, 56,000 copies of its 1993 edition and a bunch of those since the adaptation came out. Um, you know, one thing I was, I've been looking at bestseller lists recently, and you know what? Movies and TV move units. They, they just do. And even if it's War and Peace, the hardest one to move because it's 900 pages long. Um, but, you know, th- that's one where people are watching and you're going to sell some books. Uh, it's in public domain, so we should have put out our edition of War and Peace. <laughs> we book should. Edition. This is interesting. I was thinking also about... Um, how Oprah had, I think Oprah selected War and Peace, or was it just Anna Karenina? Ooh, I don't know. I think it was Anna Karenina. Yeah, I know she did Anna Karenina. Never mind. She went through that phase at the end of the The, book where she would pick like four Faulkner novels like all at once. I know she did that. And she did Anna Karenina, and there was, it was the um, Volokonsky-Pavir translation that's so good, and their translation of War and Peace is supposed to be excellent. Um, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's interesting. I bet War and Peace has been on U.S. best-selling charts in the last decade or so because of Oprah, but I'm realizing mm. as I'm saying this that that was Anna Karenina and not yeah. War and Peace. This is the first time that War and Peace has ever been on the U.K.'s uh, best-selling book charts, you know, namely because they didn't exist when War and Peace was first published. Mm-hmm. Um, but fun to see here that Britain is addressing the fact that only 4% of residents had read War and Peace. I don't know where that number came from. <laughs> Although but, 14% wish they had, and, uh, so Oh, it was a study. It was a study yeah. commissioned by the BBC store. Um, 
It says that War and Peace was also in the top five works of fiction people were most likely to lie yes, about I led, having I, read. I linked to that in Critical Linking the other day. That's ah, an interesting list. That is an interesting well. one. And we, um, I think we've done a similar survey at Book Riot, and I yes. feel like that was also on the list. Um, but it's funny, someone um, from Waterstones is saying, judging by recent sales, an awful lot of people have finally crossed this classic off their must-read list, which I'm not sure that I give them that. I don't believe that they've that everyone has read this. War and Peace looks excellent sitting on your coffee table. It does. And it's motivating to see a pretty cool editions series. too. They said that four editions of War and Peace piece are on Waterston's bestseller list right mm-hmm. now. Um, almost an equal number of, of copies of each one. Um, yeah, I mean, just a, a reminder that even a BBC TV show of War and Peace <laughs> is so big, so much bigger than what books can do sort of in their own bubble on the mm-hmm. whole that you can lift War and Peace, which it's not like, it's not like War and Peace is news. Like it's been out. Everyone who has heard of books or Tolstoy or really world literature all at all has, it's like, what could you name? You could name War and Peace and Pride and Prejudice. And mm-hmm. may, that might be it. Some I mean, Dickens. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe the Tale of Two Cities or Christmas Carol or something like that. But um, enough lift to, to give people motivation to read it. Have you read War and Peace? I read about the first hundred pages of yeah. War and Peace. I'm, I, I think you're not alone in that. I, <laughs> I did the thing, the like, page a day thing um, or like five pages a day. It was some pacing where you read, you know, you read like a very small number of pages per day and you read War and Peace over the course of a year. And that turned out to be not enough. Like the couple pages at a time wasn't enough to like get me absorbed into it. But it also wasn't so motivating that I was like, I'm just going to sit here and keep reading Mm -hmm. past my five pages per day. I don't know. The the thing that's tough about War and Peace is it's really long, which is tough anyway. But and one reason it's so compelling is the 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 story, like there's a love story and you're being pulled apart and, you know, the, all this stuff is going on, which is great. It's great drama. And I'm sure it makes a wonderful TV series. I will probably watch this because the other thing a TV series can do is it, it doesn't have to show, it doesn't have to depict all this stuff about farming and Russia. And like, it's got the, it's got this sort of Moby Dick syndrome where there's these long passages that are about not the story, but about the world and the realities of the world in which they're living and it's interesting, but it feels like you're doing homework and you just want to get back to the main characters and who's doing what to whom um, and why. So I can see why that it's probably one of those. I, I wonder if there's any – probably Moby Dick is number one or number two of books people have tried to read and can't get through. Yeah. I think it's got to be number one or number I am one much more likely to give a BBC series like this a shot than to try to read War and Peace again for that exact reason. I want to, I want to have the setup of the world yeah. and like what the whole landscape is and what's happening. But I would like to spend more of my time with the characters and with knowing, you know, who's doing what to whom and when and why and what all you know, those things that drive drama and that make television interesting. Um, I'm much more interested in that than the set piece sort of thing. I did. I loved Anna Karenina, um, but that yeah. it cooks. That thing moves along. That thing moves. And, but it's long, but it cooks along. Mm-hmm. And you could, you know, if, if those of you who have read War and Peace and if you ever get to Wachinski, I think you will can see that there's a version of War and Peace that you could imagine that's like Anna Karenina, you know, that's, it's, it's has the same sort of urgency and it's, it's still an epic, but you can get through it. You know, I think Anna Karenina is like 550, 600 pages, something like that. That reminds me, um, I don't know if there's any Portland listeners out there, but this, there's the Portland Read Harder book group is up and cooking. Um, probably you won't, this show won't get out to time to make our next one, which is February 20th at the Belmont 
um, branch of the Multnomah County Library here in Portland. But for March, you could come out and you can, you know, um, you can tweet me or you can find out on bookwright.com where it will be. But one, a couple of um, the attendees that I met there for our first one in January, they had just driven across country. Um, one of them had, had been moving to Portland. Her friend flew out to meet her. She lived out here already. And they read Anna Karenina out loud to each other Whoa. all the way across the country. They said That's they really cool. had a great time. Yeah. That's good very story. cool. I love that. So anyway, War and Peace. Um, I wonder how many of those, I mean, Waterstones, they're also not tracking ebook sales. Right. Um, so there's probably more. And speaking of ebook sales, ah. uh, Kobo. I don't like this. I, mean, uh, I don't like it either. Kobo, I think, is a good company. I like their apps. Um, they've done some mm-hmm. business with before, full disclosure, um, though they don't uh, currently. I guess that's fuller disclosure. <laughs> um, they, they, they're basically saying it's not going so great at Kobo. Rakuten, which is the Japanese company that's the parent company of Kobo. They bought them a few years ago. Rakuten's kind of the, the Japanese Amazon, a huge um, online retailer. Uh, basically, they said, Kobo, here's exact statement, because sometimes this, this business speak is worth parsing, has been impacted by a slower start. You know, there's passive voice to start, so you know, that's never a good sign. Has been impacted by a slower start to the rise of the global ebook industry than we originally expected, and hence its business plan fell behind original targets. Mistakes were made, but not Mistakes by me. Mistakes were made. Um, let's see. The impairment charge. Basically, when you're valuing your company, you sort of put a number on what you think the the value of their various components are. And what they're saying is they took an impairment charge. Basically, they wrote down the value of their Kobo unit by 233 million pounds, which is about 350 to $400 million. Dang. They just gave it a haircut on the, their um, their balance sheet of what they think it's worth. That's real bad. It is real, real bad. bad. You know, it's... I would think some of it is connected to these ebook pricing hikes that we yeah. are seeing from publishers. One of our uh, longtime listeners and online buds, Ray, was tweeting last night that she was looking at something and it was like she could order the paperback for nine sixty five or the ebook for nine eighty five. And it was like, well, why mm-hmm. why? Except that I want the ebook right now. I think a lot of our a lot of readers are experiencing that. And so as we've talked about and you and Amanda talked about last week with those, the gap between print and ebook prices is closing. People are migrating to print more. It hurts if you're a primarily digital company. And Kobo mm-hmm. uh, has partnered with the ABA and with indie booksellers here. And they are the way that if you want to buy ebooks, but go through an indie bookseller, that's the way to do it here in the US. But the marketing around that has never been wonderful. Um, it's not it's never caught on in a way that Kobo is really able to take a swing um, at Amazon or at Barnes and Noble, yeah. or um, really primarily at Amazon and Barnes and Noble as the other um, main ebook distributors in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I think kind of one thing's going on. We heard for a while, and I haven't heard a number recently that iBooks had made some relatively decent gains in market share for eBooks, and it makes sense. It's a native app on your iPhone or iPad, and you don't have to go through the hoop of like buying through a store and then downloading. You can buy it right there on their device. And I think if you're not going to do that, and you're going to get a third-party app for an eBook, you're probably going to go to Amazon if you live in America. Um, why have a Barnes and Noble app and a Kobo app and a Google Play app and you know what, um, Zola Books or whatever whatever else the case might be? It's going to be hard to do that. And if you're running third place, and if you don't have any brand awareness in the U.S. to start with, 
and your prices aren't any better than Barnes and Nobles and your prices aren't any better than Amazon, the only real reason to go with Kobo is you don't like Amazon. Like that's your story. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough. And I I think they're I I frankly think their app is nicer. Um, as a reading experience in the Kindle app myself. I think it's the nicest of the sort of major platform reading apps. Um, and they have their own deals and they have curation and they do a lot of the different things and there's reasons to recommend them. But if no one knows who you are, h- how can you grow? I mean, I'm, it's not a surprise. It's very difficult because I, I don't see a lot of Kobo advertising. No, it's, Like I see Amazon ads and Barnes & Noble ads, but I don't see any Kobo well, ads. So. The, you know, the longer you're behind the eight ball, the further behind it you, yeah. you get. Like... Almost everyone has an Amazon account for something. Mm-hmm. You know, you once bought diapers in bulk for your kid or you bought a new TV on Amazon or you signed up for something. And so you getting your ebooks there, using the Kindle app on your phone, that's very smooth and easy. Like my full disclosure is I do use the Kobo app. I yeah. have like I've bought ebooks through Kobo for years and I do like the reading experience there and the stats. And at this point, I'm pot committed because yeah, my right. catalog of ebooks from Hooker the last reference. several I like that. years. Why, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I that's where I'm at. Like my library of, of the ebooks that mm-hmm. I've read for the last five or six years are in Kobo, and so that is where they will stay. And the good people at Word in Brooklyn know all of my dirty ebook buying habits. Because... Right, because they have one. That's another thing they do have is they have partnerships with some independent bookstores where if you right. buy, basically through your independent bookstore, you buy ebooks through Kobo, they get a cut. Right. Your local, so you can support your local as, as you you know make some portion of your book buying. Right, uh, which e-books. I like as well. But if I, I like were, very much, very interesting. Idea. If I were starting right now as an ebook reader, you wouldn't even know Kobo exists. No, and yeah. I'm <laughs> I'm solidly an Apple person, so I would I would either go through iBooks because it's the easiest thing because I already have that account, or you know I've got Amazon Prime, so I might just get a Kindle, um, or I might just read through the Kindle yeah. app on my iPhone and my iPad. I can I see how that begins, um, and I'm an Audible user, right? So if Mm -hmm. I started with a Kindle, I could do the thing where you connect your Kindle books and your Audible books and you can pick things up as you, you know, drop out a chapter on print and then pick up the next chapter on audio. There are a lot of, like, Amazon's not dumb. There are a lot of compelling reasons. They do a good job advertising. They certainly take advantage of what they can do with pricing and sales. And um, I really, I like Kobo a lot and I would like to see them succeed, but it's it's tough. They're pushing a rock up a big hill. Yeah, they are. And and also, when you're third place in what appears to be a plateauing plateauing and perhaps declining market ebook sales, um, that's a recipe for, you know, writing down $400, $100 million worth of value. Um, that's what happened. That's not a good sign. Um, they don't break out earnings or revenue or anything else like that, but I can only imagine mm-hmm. it's a bit of a bloodbath. Um, they do, they do say that they did purchase overdrive and that is doing relatively well overdrive, which is basically the back end for a lot of ebook lending services. Like chances are, if you um, use ebook lending with your local library, if you're listening from the States, probably Overdrive is powering that back end, even if you don't see it. Um, so that's one thing that's interesting. Ebook lending, we have seen ebook lending in libraries year over year was up considerably last year. And some have thought that maybe as the technology gets a little bit better, people are more used to ebooks. You know, they're switching some of their, their work, you know, some of their reading over to libraries, especially as ebook prices go up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was certainly of the camp where if I could get an ebook for, you know, a pretty good discount over the paperback, 
I would buy it for six ninety nine, eight ninety nine, rather than wait on the library or go through the hassle of trying to get an overdrive and hold. Um, but when they're fourteen ninety nine, the value proposition of lending for me personally goes up considerably. Um, so I don't know. That's that's a story that's going to continue to unfold. I would be. I w- I think probably Amazon's feeling the pinch too. I, I think everybody is probably. Yeah. Well, we even see. We'll yeah. talk about um, Hachette right. here in a minute. Um, what follow up from um, was it last? It was two weeks ago when we and I were talking about the dedicated ebook mm-hmm. gift card thing. Yeah. Got a lot of feedback from that from from people both in the comments and an email. Um, some of them are quite happy with you know giving uh, ebook titles. That's great. I I you know our conversation. I think I'll stand. Um, my birthday, um, not my birthday. But Michelle and I had our anniversary a little while ago, and she did a thing where she wanted to get me the audio book of something as part of the gifts. But that's that's even worse than mm. the ebook because we share an Audible account. So if she buys it, You're gonna you know, I'm going to get a notification. <laughs> so she got to hide it. So what she did is she got the book from the library and wrapped it up and put a ah, note in it. Cute. Which I thought was nice. Um, She's anyway, a clever so that's, lady. She is. She is clever. So if you anyone want to steal that, you know, or 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 I thought about after because I'd never considered this before. Go buying a used edition, getting one cheap. Mm. If you're going to buy an ebook, so it's kind of your you could do your own digital print bundling mm-hmm. um, that way. So you can you know, or if you want to buy it, you can check it out from the library and sort of say um, uh, that's. But that's another workaround. That's what we call a life hack uh, for giving. <laughs> Hashtag, life hack. Hashtag life hack. Hashtag life hack. Uh, all right. So yeah, I guess Let's... we should maybe get to Hashtag UK just while we're sort of in industry uh, insider baseball stuff. Um, Hachette UK, I don't know if people know this, Hachette's one of the big five publishing companies. They're actually owned by a giant European conglomerate. Um, I don't know how to say it. It's like Laguerre. Laguerre. Laguerre, Laguerre, something like that. Um, But Hachette UK just reported earnings, and their overall sales fell fell by 6.7% in the fourth quarter, Um, and they give the principal reason as lower ebook sales. Mm -hmm. Um, Laguerre Publishing. Market trends have reversed in the U.S. and the U.K. So that's not plateauing. Yeah. That is reversing. Yeah. So that's why I really put this in the show notes. I thought this was super interesting. It is interesting. You know, and I wonder how much of this is publishers not thinking about the long game. I like we've talked a lot about this, the ebook pricing thing and ebooks versus print editions, especially paperbacks lately. But I think when you make the ebook less appealing, you also cut into your ability to take advantage of impulse buys. Like if a title just pops up or you a friend recommends it or you hear about it and you go and look and you can grab the ebook for like $7.99, but the paperback is $17.99, you might just pick up the $7.99 ebook and you don't know how long it's going to be until you get to it, but you bought the thing, it sounded good, you spent eight bucks. Um, if the ebook is also $17.99 or close, I don't think the publishers are getting that sale. I would guess no. that the customer is not like, oh, well, I'll order the, I will impulse buy this paperback that will show up in five days and it won't be instant gratification right. anymore. They're just not getting any sale at all from that. And uh, it could be, this could be that it's just my use case, as Amanda was talking about last week, you know, assuming that everybody does the things that you do. But I will impulse buy the crap out of an ebook that somebody mentions it. You talk about something on the show. I think, oh, that sounds really good. If the ebook is a reasonable price, I buy it immediately. I might not read it for months or ever, but I spent dollars on it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not doing the same thing for a $17.99 paperback or for a hardcover. Um, and I, I wonder if that's what's going on there. You know, ebook sales 
sales dipping, but those the drop in ebooks isn't all just going over to equal an increase in print. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, they say here that that um, digital sales represented twenty six percent of old of, of, of excuse me of adult trade mm. sales in twenty fifteen. And that's down from 31% in 2014. So that's, it's a 5% five, 5 absolute drop, but a, but a heavy, heavy, you know, like 20% um, relative drop, which is big mm-hmm. year over year. That and big. that's not the story I thought we were going to be mm-hmm. telling about ebooks. Um, I think most people a few years ago would have said there would be an equilibrium at some point that digital wasn't going to kill print completely, but we didn't know what portion of the pie chart would be ebook and not only what portion it would be but that it would get to some size and then shrink I think is a shock to everyone yeah it's very interesting um the other day it's strength in the U.S. market uh especially and I wonder if some of that is because of currency the dollar is so strong so mm-hmm. any any sales you can do in the U.S. and you report as an international yeah. company helps your bottle you do bottom have to line. wonder what would have happened if we hadn't started closing this gap between ebook and print book prices. If the if the yeah. user numbers of ebooks would have shrunk anyway, or if mm-hmm. it would have continued to grow, or at least or at least stayed on the plateau. Um, but these, yeah. these declines are interesting, and I'm I think we're both not in the camp of just celebrating because print is back and people like print. Um, there could be a longer term. I'm concerned well, I, about longer term issues. Yeah, here. I am too. I mean, I think. It seems like if the gambit, I'm not sure if anyone's ever said this out loud from, you know, a big five publisher, but when they went to, when they sort of overturned the pricing structure with Amazon and basically raised ebook prices across the board, it seems like the chess move was to buttress print sales, you know, to protect print sales, both because, you know, I think existing retail outlets is important to them um, and also that that's a hedge against Amazon's dominance, at least in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and they're taking a bit of a short-term hit on ebook sales and revenues, total revenues, but they are not as exposed to Amazon. Um, a, I don't know if that's working. I don't know if they look at their yeah. sheet and Amazon is a smaller percentage of their sales or not. I'd love to know that. And I don't know if they're, that move is going to be beneficial in the longer term. Like, I I agree with you. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what the downside is necessarily. I think a lot of people I've talked to sort of anecdotally recently, like every time I see someone I've been seeing in a while that it's a book person at all, they want to talk about books with me, which I love. And a lot of the stories I'm getting are sort of similar to what you and I and Michelle's this way and my mom, I talked to her recently about this, are sort of backing off eBooks entirely. And I don't think it's all about price. I mean, maybe price is the straw that broke the camel's back, but I think remembering how useful print can be and the pleasures and utility of print and also audiobooks themselves um, are a different format that ebooks are kind of in this weird valley where they're not as pleasurable and useful to read as print in its way. If you like that, they have a different use case and you know, they're not, they're not audiobooks where you can re- listen to them anytime. Um, so it's almost like they're getting caught between 
audiobooks and print books um, yeah, and the people I'm talking. It is an interesting pinch. And I think I might be something of an edge case in that I mm. don't buy print anymore unless mm. I'm traveling, which if I'm visiting an indie bookstore or if I go to an event and I'm right. in a bookstore, I buy something in print in that bookstore. Um, but like bookshelf space is limited in my house. And most things that I read don't end up being something that I love enough that I want to keep a print copy of it. So I do most of my, I would say I do like 90% of my book buying is digital and I like it that way because if after I read it, if I don't need to keep it, it just it basically disappears into <laughs> the file just lives somewhere and I don't have to think about it. Um, but yeah, I think you're anecdotally more we, we are hearing more and more um, of people reverting to that preference for print. Certainly publishers have not figured out a way to make ebooks more appealing than print. Everybody has tried, you know, the variations on enhanced ebooks and none of those have stuck yet. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see. And again, I don't know where, where we're going to end up with in 20 years time, um, if it's going to be this way. Is the hedge against a specific company worth what seems like, I don't know, it feels, ebooks still do feel like the future in, in a way, but maybe maybe it's a different kind of future than we thought it mm-hmm. would be. Maybe ebooks really are just um, one among many formats. Um, and that print will will buck the trend. Frankly, we have seen in all cultural products of going largely digital. Um, it's happened with movies. It happened with music. Uh, I think everyone thought that the same thing would happen with books, and it just hasn't yet. Um, and I don't know. It's almost. I almost feel though like if ebooks are so much better than print, then equity and pricing wouldn't be enough to slow its rise. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Like if it was really that much better. Yeah, and they, I don't think they've made it better. Yeah, I don't think it is that but much better. It's and interesting. Maybe, maybe they will be, but I, it just isn't right now. Yeah, in the framing of all other forms of media have really gone the way of digital, which is accurate. None of those other industries have had strategy that, as you're saying, is almost wholly informed by reaction to and preparation against one particular mm-hmm. company. Um like, you know, Spotify and Pandora are affecting digital music now. But when MP3s first became a thing, it wasn't like they were sitting around at Sony Records plotting their digital yeah. pricing strategy because everybody was worried about Spotify and right. Pandora. Um, so well, I, they got, like, we were more worried about I would, Napster, right? I, would, I mean, that yeah, was a right. thing. It went free. That yeah. was the first move in would, the MP3 games is like, love, we've got to have something or it's going to be free. Right. Yeah, I would love to know as a thought experiment, if publishers could just sit down in a universe where Amazon did not exist as this big threat, what is the ebook strategy that they would have come up with? Because it, it just feels like all of the major decisions, and I think it feels that way because they are made that way, are made either in reaction to what Amazon is doing or in anticipation of what they think Amazon's going to do or what they're afraid Amazon might do. And that's not a position of strength really ever. No. Um, to, to make a solid strategy, um, that especially a solid strategy for a long term, if you're really just anticipating your opponent's next step, and publishers can't think wholly of Amazon as an opponent because they also need sure. Amazon. If it's, they were wholly opponent, they wouldn't list their books at all. Right, it's a very tangled web. Right. Um, but we haven't, we didn't, we haven't seen an analog for that in a different uh, format of you know art media converting to digital. Yeah. I do wonder too if. You know, the story about Amazon books for the last really 10 years has been 
boy, they're really eating everybody's lunch in books. But I wonder if Amazon hadn't a little miscalculated in its mm. dealings with publishing insofar as they were did – they, did they start – tightening the screws too early? Mm. Did they make the market, the, their, their relationship with publishers more adversarial than they needed to? And they've really cut off some upside. You know, if they'd been a little more generous with their terms, if they'd been a little more generous with data. Um, there might you know, have been some hastiness to, sure, we use books as a loss yeah, leader. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, whereas because the thing that happened with music especially is that iTunes, you know, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs and Eddie Q walked into the these meetings with the big music publishers and iTunes came in as a solution to a problem which was free MP3 file sharing and said here's an easy way people can download it and put on their iPods and sign these good terms. So they were much more at least initially on the same side. Now now it's, you know, they destroyed, you know, physical records mm-hmm. and I don't know as much about the music industry, but Amazon came in as an adversary or an upstart at least and then into an adversary and they you know they'd make you buy they you know I don't know if people know this they make you buy placements and co-op and all this other stuff in addition to really tough terms um for selling and I just wonder if they had waited longer to try to squeeze blood from the stone if they wouldn't be in this position of really getting their ebook business squeezed um you know, if we would have had this agency pricing problem, this, I mean, to be fair, this uh, uh, antitrust mm-hmm. situation with Amazon and the big five publishers, did they need to get to that point? And as much as publishing might be screwing its intermediate or long-term future, if you know, if that's a possibility, it seems to me that Amazon did that five years ago, um, at least with its position in books. They gave everyone a reason to go. So, there's a lot of reasons not to like Amazon and publishing. And did they really need to do that? I, I'm not sure. It, it, in in hindsight, it seems short-sighted to be such a jerk about it. Um, but anyway, here we are. And uh, the next five years are more up in the air in digital books and e-books and book selling than I think they've been in a while, to be honest. Or, or not that they have not they weren't up in the air, but the perception that they're up in the air is much greater than they were. Um, so anyway, yeah, that transitions nicely. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say I was, I was setting you up there, waiting. I'm just waiting yes, for the segue. Yeah, Come the on. you know the evolution of eBooks and to one of the stories that we've been watching closely for the last few years is the subscription services. Uh, we heralded the arrival of Oyster, and then we have sadly mourned uh, yes. that closing. And Scribd has made yet another major change to its subscription service announced this week. Um, Scribd, also full disclosure, has sponsored our show previously. Yes, uh, is not a current sponsor and was once the it was just solidly all you can eat in the same way that uh, that oyster was and then they moved to all you can eat plus just one audiobook rather than all you can listen uh, as well and sort of put some you could buy extra credits to listen to extra audiobooks and so they're now making another change to the model and i find this as a consumer very confusing Mm -hmm. um it's 8.99 still sometime in mid-march however you will get uh the all you can eat library plus one audiobook a month. Um, the all you can eat library will be smaller, and then there will be like a rotating library of other stuff that you can read a limited number of those from as well. So there are now like three components. Well, hey, you can hear that tone <laughs> in my voice that 
I think I think the easiest way to think of it, and boy, if you say that as a consumer-facing <laughs> subscription product, I mean, geez, Louise, there are basically two pools, right? Mm-hmm. There's the basically a premium pool, and then everything else. The premium pool, you basically have it's gated, you know, sort of you're gated how many you can do. One audiobook and three regular ebook choices from the Scrib Select. That's the premium pool, and there's this other pool that's all you can eat, and it's, it has audiobooks too and ebooks. But there's two different things. So if you want to pick from the premium pool, you basically have three audiobook choice, three ebook choices, and one audiobook choice. And if you want to pick from the you know the kiddie pool, that has everything else that you can re- read and listen to all you want. The monthly fee remains the same at eight ninety nine. So, like, what's going to be in the kiddie pool is the question. Like, you yeah. can read as many of these as you want. Is only compelling if the things in the pool are good um, or are desirable. You know, as many of these things that you don't want. <laughs> yes, is, as many of the things that you don't. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say because, in a way, that's kind of what Netflix does already. They just don't gatekeep it like this. Like they have a few, they have a few new things every month and then they go away. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they, they have an, they have a sort of a rotating catalog, but it feels deep enough that you never feel like it's being, I don't know, you're being limited because if it's on there, you can watch as much as you want. Right. It's just a purely here's the pool and yeah. what's in the pool changes on all the subscription, you know, on all the right. movie and TV subscription services, what's available in the pool changes and you find out this is coming in February, this is going away in February, but there's not a like, you can have as much of the stuff you want from this pool and here's this other special pool and you can only have three of these. Right, yeah. And if all the, I haven't seen these lists from Scribus, so I don't know, but like my most- I don't most, think they're out there. I yeah, don't think lists my, are out there. My most skeptical side is like, okay, so is it just all the crap in the in the have all you want pool? And if you want to read the good stuff, then it's in the premium pool and- as a consumer, I would rather have like for eight ninety nine, you get, you know, three things a month. For fifteen ninety nine, you get unlimited. Like rather than dividing the mm-hmm. catalogs, I would rather divide. You know, pay for this much access, pay for another level of access. Um, but uh, yeah, I the thing. I mean, they give it and they take it away with this. The thing they give it is you can listen to unlimited audiobooks from the kiddie pool. Whereas before it was really just one audiobook from whatever. The thing they take it away is before you could read unlimited ebooks across everything that was on there, where now there's even ebooks that are gated. I think I understand um, what they're doing because they're, they even said that their average user only reads a few titles a month. So their average user is actually going to, you know, have an experience like it's unlimited because they'll cap out the select plus something from the kiddie pool. It's the power user that's going to feel the pinch, you know, mm-hmm. that read 10 or a hundred, you know, they say 10, I, I don't know who's reading a hundred books a month. It's not lib. Um, so that's it for power users and the kind of people that are listening to this show. And frankly, the kind of people that I think are on board for a, a book subscription service at all. And that's, that's the, the thinking that hasn't, I haven't really seen happen sort of on the wider bookish internet is, is there a market for a average reader to buy a subscription serv- book subscription service? Or is it the only people who are going to get to pay $9 a month for a subscription service are power readers and they're going to want to read 25 yeah, books a month anyway? I think there might be a market for it for like one or two books 
per month, but it would need to be, you would need to have big bestseller name titles right right up in front that, you know, the kinds of things that you see at the airport bookstore that if you're, if you only read when you're traveling, if you're the person who reads 10 books a year or one book a month or something, which is still more than almost Mm -hmm. everyone else, um, what are you selecting? You're probably selecting those things that are out at the front lines. Like you need major front list or very recent big name paperback. Mm -hmm. I mean, because when the product originally launched and it had comics and audiobooks, our readers went crazy for it. Like it's un- – the original product was an unbelievable deal. And mm-hmm. maybe that was the problem is that it was too good of a deal to start. Like maybe if they had started with unlimited ebooks plus one audiobook a month, sort of that middle thing they went to. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like that was sustainable. They didn't want to do that. I I just don't know. I'm not not sure what the right answer is. Like, if I was in charge of this, I'm not sure what I would do. Mm -hmm. Because my my gut is saying, make it like Netflix. Make it all you can eat, but shrink the catalog and rotate them. Right. And it's like, why can Netflix do it and Scribd can't? That's the thing. There's no Netflix like kiddie pool and. Like the jacuzzi right, right, right. pool. Right. Like, it's whoa, just whoa, all whoa, the ocean. You're just in the ocean at Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know what I would do either. I do know that I would try not to do these like every three months. There's a change to in what mid-March? you can get. Like, what is that? It's Sometime this, in mid March? Like, why, why not say April 1st? Right. This or stuff May is 1st. really bad for consumer yeah. confidence, especially when it's the second time you've made a big change. So now they've had three business models in mm-hmm. a year and a half. It's yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough. The other piece that we don't have access to is what the negotiating side of the table looks like on publishing. I mean, maybe we're just getting crappy terms. Like somehow Netflix, you would think Hollywood would be a tougher negotiator than the big five or even, you know, the whole publishing industry Mm -hmm. at large, but maybe they're doing the same game of trying to protect print sale. They're trying to protect sales. There's not the Hollywood version of Amazon that all those studios are afraid of. And they're not afraid of Netflix. I mean, I think HBO and TV is much more afraid of Netflix Mm -hmm. than Hollywood is. Um, So yeah, I I don't know. My guess is they just can't get terms from publishers that let them do a Netflix like model model. I just don't think they can get it. Uh, because I even think it would be interesting if – what if Scribd every month there were only 50 titles, but yeah, it was all you, you could, can eat? 50 titles of a good variety, is, that's way more than anybody can read in a month. And you just sign term mm-hmm. contracts for those books. Like their bill of 30 much will give you a flat fee. Um, I don't know. I also wonder if you can't stream movies from your library where you can check out ebooks right. and get audiobooks and physical books from li- from your library. So I wonder if there's more pressure from below in just sort of free lending mm-hmm. in books that that movie at least Netflix streaming services never really had. When, anecdotally, we do hear that anytime we have talked about ebook subscription services, there are people I just get it from my library. Yeah, people yeah. who pipe up like, well that already exists. You can check mm. out as many ebooks as you want from your library. So I think there's some there is some real truth to that, especially for power readers, um, there's less incentive to pay for a thing that you can get for free through your library. The argument was the process of digital lending has been kind of clunky with public library systems and the catalogs may not be as robust for some library systems as they were for Scribd. But this is, I don't have much hope for the long term of Scribd at this point. I don't either. I mean, the only I don't like Kindle Unlimited. I don't know. I mean, Amazon never tells you any numbers, so you never know. Like they'll do stuff like our payments are up to Kindle Unlimited partners. 
Again, who knows what that right, is? Yeah, I really don't know what that more, more people could be opting in. Well, I've and, seen pieces this week in response to this Scribd news that's like Amazon is now the king of unlimited reading subscriptions, but that neglects the fact that the content in Kindle Unlimited yeah, is really different bad. from, yeah, it, it's, it's my taste, really different Not from desirable for me. the content that is in Scribd and that was on Oyster in terms of being recent backlist from big publishers. Um, it's not just, it's not that Amazon just won the subscription game pure and simple. They played their subscription game differently, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. is, uh, that's an important really distinction when you're writing those headlines. Um, we have, we're burning through stuff. I think we have oh, to yeah. wrap yeah. up, but we should give some shouts. We have some heroes of the week. These we do. are, ma- I don't know that we're going to exceed some of these hero stories that we've had. Already. I, I want, I, I just, yeah, I was thinking we should just tease this because I really want people to go read this. Yes. Article. Yeah. That's what I was going to say as well. We'll drop a link in. Um, this is a story from Wired about Hausa women who live in northern Nigeria. Um, and these women who are writing stories, sultry romances, scandalous family dramas, all sorts of stories, publishing them themselves. Some of them are able to make um, a, a moderate living from doing so. And they are writing the kinds of stories that are very subversive in their culture and for which the government could come after them. Um, in most cases, they are not, but they're they're being very subversive and being very brave in writing and telling these stories um, and making them available to others to read and to identify with. They're remarkable. I When I read this yesterday, I was like, these women are heroes, yeah. um, real heroes for the power of books and reading. And so we'll drop that link to Wired and you really should go read the story. Um, the title is The Subversive Women Who Self-Publish Novels Amid Jihadist War. Um, amazing, amazing story. Yeah. Um, one of the books, the most famous one is, was made, is available in English. It's the only one, I think the first one, um, it was translated to English in 2012 and it's called sin is a puppy that follows you home. Mm. I think I'm going to read this just to see what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) it's a long piece and wired. So if you're interested in it, um, block off some time, make some time. It's worth it. Um, but very much uh, we would, you're right. I'm so glad you made sure we wrap that in. Um, I guess that's going to be our show. Is I that think so. Show? That's our show. We can't That's go anywhere show. up from there. No, no. It's it's best that we left it there. Uh, so we got links that you should – you want to see that link. You're going to want to see the link to What's Up with YA, uh, the new newsletter. Also, we're going to mention um, – we're having a lot of fun on Instagram these days, Book Riot is. Um, so if you're you're on Instagram, you can go to Instagram.com slash Book Riot to follow or we're just at Book Riot on Instagram if you're a user. I'm posting stuff that we get out of our mailbags or contributing editors – put stuff on there, you know, kids and puppies with books. And yesterday, um, our, our, our coworker and friend, Derek, uh, one of his, he's, he specializes in bookmobiles and one of his friends, um, knitted him a bookmobile it's out of yarn. It's the cutest thing ever. It's unbelievably and cute. What are we doing with our lives that we didn't specialize in bookmobiles? <laughs> I don't know. Derek seems to have it figured out. Um, <laughs> So you go check us out over there. That's a, another way to keep up with Book Riot, too, if, you, if you're like Instagram. It's a lot of fun to see what people are reading and people share stuff over there all the time. But also go check out the What's Up with NYA newsletter. I'll put a link in the show notes. And do read this Wired story um, if you have a few minutes to, to pay attention to it. And that's our show, man. Rebecca, yep. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Have a good one. <laughs> 